Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Joining me today is Tammy Foreman, Executive Director of Path Forward, a nonprofit that facilitates mid-career returnships that give men and women a jumpstart back into the workforce after time spent focused on caregiving. Since 2016, they have worked with more than 50 companies to create return-to-work programs, including Walmart, Netflix, and NBC Universal. Tammy pivoted from a career in publishing to marketing in 1999, working for a software company called Return Path that piloted a program to empower women to restart their careers after caregiving through mid-career internships. Return Path CEO Matt Blumberg tapped her to run a nonprofit, spun out of the successful idea, and she's been at the helm ever since. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, Path Forward has conducted virtual workshops with partner companies, offered webinars, and counsel for job seekers navigating the challenges of an employment search in a time of social distancing. Tammy, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And what I didn't mention in the intro, but we talked about just briefly before we went on air, is that I found out about Path Forward through my wife, who found out about it through a friend, (laughs) because my wife is one of those folks who has been a caregiver for a little more than 19 years now. So we have a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old, and she's interested in going back to work. And she listened to one of her webinars that happened to be walking by the office, going for a quick snack at home because we're all at home. And I'm like, that's interesting. What's that? And a member of my team reached out. So I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's great. I'm really excited about this. I love what you're doing. Well, I love what you're doing. And I'm embarrassed to say I never heard of the word returnship before. I think it's so cool. I don't think it's part of a vernacular enough. And I have long said, especially in my business, in the marketing and PR business, there is so much talent that's no longer in the market, but wants to get back into the market. So if you can just go back four or five years ago and talk a little bit about the founding and how this kind of gained steam in the marketplace. Yeah. So you mentioned Return Path, which is a company I was working for, a small software company based in New York City. They were based in New York City, but had a large office in Colorado. So a lot of the programming, engineering folks, product management, all that stuff was in Colorado. And including the head of HR was in Colorado, this woman named Kathy Hawley. And she had started working with the National Center for Women in Information Technology that is based at CU Boulder on a whole range of issues around women and gender equality in the workforce. So they were trying to increase the number of women. They were trying to increase the number of women in leadership, in technical jobs, right? All of that stuff. So they partnered with NCWIT and they were doing things that companies were starting to do back then, right? Unconscious bias training, looking at their job descriptions, manager training and things like that. So they're doing all of those things. And I'm working in marketing and doing my thing and being a publicist and being a corporate marketing person. Kathy had the personal experience of women in her network, right? Women she knew as professional women who had gone, you know, were stay-at-home moms, were trying to get back into the workforce, were trying to get jobs at Return Path, asking Kathy for help as the head of HR. She's going to the manager and the manager is like, well, but Kathy, like, this guy is working right now. Why would I hire someone who hasn't worked in five or 10 years? So Kathy decided she needed to take a more programmatic approach and started doing some research. There were some returnship programs at that point running at a couple of Wall Street banks, but it hadn't really gone past that. 
So she worked with the folks at Return Path in the engineering department and created this returnship program. So brought six women in. And that was kind of the start of it. And my role at that point, the way I got involved with it was I was a publicist and I saw a good story. So I pitched this idea to media like, hey, look at this software company that's doing this program. And it started to get some press. And so other companies, particularly in Colorado, that were also involved with some of the NCWIT initiatives started reaching out to Kathy and also to Matt Blumberg, the CEO, and being like, hey, that thing that you're doing with the moms coming back to work, could we be part of it? Could you help us? Could you talk to our HR folks? Could we recruit with you? Could we make it a community effort? So some other companies started getting involved. I call that the community consortium phase of our life, right? It was still under the auspices of Return Path. But then Matt was sitting at his desk one day, the phone rang, and it was a woman from PayPal. And she said, hey, I read about this thing that you're doing with the moms back to work. We've been trying to do that for a while. Could you help us? His reaction was like, huh? Yes, sure. But also like my HR department can't run PayPal's HR programs. Like that's silly. Like they need to work for me. But meanwhile, this is clearly something that more companies would do if they had help. So he decided to found a nonprofit. At that point, I had been working with and for him for about 12 and a half years. I was getting ready to take a sabbatical. And he said, well, let me tell you what I'm doing with the internship program. I'm going to found a nonprofit. What do you think of that idea? And I said, I think you need to go find a new head of corporate marketing because I think I want to quit my job and run your nonprofit instead. <laughs> Which is also funny because I had never been an entrepreneur. Like I had no desire to start a company or start a business or run a nonprofit. Like that was, it just immediately resonated with me that this is important, that this is something that needs to be done. And I think I can make it a thing and make it happen. And I mean, kudos to him as well for taking that step because, you know, there's one thing to talk about it or treat it like a pet project, but to actually use your own funds to be able to launch something, that's a whole nother level of commitment and vision. So, you know, I think that's amazing. So that was what, four years ago? So that was, yeah. So that was late. We kind of incubated it within Return Path in late 2015. We launched Path Forward as a fully independent nonprofit organization in the end of January, 2016. Just out of curiosity, what kind of software was Return Path? Return Path was email deliverability optimization. So a very, within the email marketing space. So they existed within the ecosystem with like Salesforce Marketing Cloud, Epsilon, ExactTarget, if you remember that name from back in the day, Responses. They were a kind of a niche within that. So they were a bolt-on product within that suite of email marketing services. So are they still around? The brand is still around. They got bought by another company called Validity up in Boston last summer. So they kept the brand because they're the branded products, but it's now under a company called Validity. So Matt's left and is starting his own thing. And then PathForward is continuing to do its thing as a independent nonprofit. And how do you guys raise money? Is it through your partnerships with the larger companies as well? So we kind of went into this with the attitude from the beginning that this was going to be focused on earned income and that as a workforce development organization, we thought about funding as a big piece of the funding needed to come from the companies, that the companies should pay to be part of this program and support that. 
So that has been in the last couple of years, about 80 to 85% of our funding has come from the corporate partnerships. We are a C3. So the remainder of our funding anywhere, depending on the year between, you know, 15 to 20% of our funding comes from donations. And that's a combination of our board, right? Of the board of the nonprofit makes donations and other friends and family people that are making donations. So I guess that's good in a way that you don't have to, I mean, obviously you're always, I hate to use the word selling, but you are always selling in that you need to work with these companies to be able to create these programs and create opportunities for people who want to return to work, right? Yeah. But you're not spending the majority of your time as the executive director of this incredible nonprofit constantly fundraising because that is painful. It is painful. (laughs) It is painful. I do a fair amount of it, nevertheless, as a good nonprofit executive. But yeah, it's different. Like, look, you know, the donations to us, the way we think about them just conceptually is... There is no doubt that the companies benefit, right? About 80% of the people who go through a path forward program get hired full-time by the company. So, you know, if a company does a cohort of, let's call it 10 people and they hire eight, like the ROI on that is very high for them, right? But at the same time, they feel that there is a risk coming into this, right? So they're not willing to pay us at the level they pay recruiters, for example, right? Nobody's going to pay a, you know, 15% of first year salary for someone who's been out of the workforce for five or 10 or 15 years. So there's a balance there. And any individual company could win the talent game just by hiring people who are already in the market and are already, you know, who are currently working. But as a society, if we leave talent on the sidelines, they're chasing each other off a cliff if they all do that, right? The tragedy of the commons is the overall talent pool will shrink and many people will not be able to access the workforce. So one of the things I tell people about our program, the people who come into our program, on average, they have 11 years of prior professional experience before they apply for a returnship. About 98% of them have a bachelor's degree. Now, for those of us who work in the professional workforce, we think, oh, well, what's a big deal? Everybody I know has a college degree, right? That compares with about a third of the American workforce. Not everybody has a college degree, right? About half of them have a master's degree or above. So again, that compares to about 25% of the American workforce, right? Not everybody has an advanced degree. So, okay, 11 years of experience, bachelor's degree, about half with a master's degree. On average, they've been out of the workforce for six and a half years. And that's the hurdle they have to overcome. But if we as a society cannot find a way to plug in a workforce (laughs) that has 10 years of experience and, and all of these educational credentials, we lose. And to me, that's the social mission piece of what we do. And we should all contribute to a program that helps make sure that we are tapping into the talent of the entire workforce. So the last 10 years, because of technology, and maybe it's just because of the industry I'm in, things are moving so quickly. When I talk to someone who's been out of the workforce for even, let's say, six years, like you said, on average, and I use the word, oh, what's that sound? Oh, that was just someone slacking me. They're like, wait, what does that mean? And that doesn't sound right. That sounds kind of weird. And I have to explain what Slack is. And everybody now knows what Zoom is for the wrong reason, but everybody knows what Zoom is, right? But the technology is so fast now. How do you advise people to get up to speed? Not in the core skill set necessarily. 
but also on the tech side. So if you're a marketer and you miss that entire social media boom, that's potentially a problem, right? But you might be a great writer regardless, and a great writer can be used anywhere and can learn how to write social media copy versus analog copy. Yeah. I mean, the great thing is, and we don't, one of the things we don't do as an organization is we don't do any skill training, either on technology generally or core job skills. And part of the reason for that, well, part of it came from that revelation that Kathy Hawley had, right? Which is the women were not broken, the system was, right? It was a demand side problem, not a supply side problem. But also because there are many skilling organizations out there. So we see people in our database, for example, who have done a boot camp, right, to get their engineering skills back up to speed. We had a woman in marketing, that's a great example. She had come from direct marketing, right? Literally worked for BMG Music. You, I think, might be old enough as I am to remember when you could buy one CD and get 10 free by putting your little penny on your thing, right? I tell that story to millennials, they're like, what's a CD, what's a penny? And you mailed what, where, why, right? Like people don't even understand that, right? I still have 3,000 in my attic, just so you know. Exactly, (laughs) right? right? Right, right. But what she did know was like how to compare campaigns, do A-B split testing, analyze data, right? You know some of those core marketing skills aren't that different if the medium is different. And she took the digital marketing certificate course through HubSpot, which is completely free because HubSpot wants to train more HubSpot people. So, you know, again, women are finding very creative ways, whether it's through a Coursera, a Udemy, a Udacity, many of these boot camps to get those skills up to speed. When it comes to the day-to-day office thing, I think we overestimate how hard some of that stuff is. Or first of all, I think we forget that that stuff has changed for us a lot in the last 10 years, meaning we're not even using the same things we were 10 years ago and we'll adapt to the next thing when the next thing comes. So they'll adapt with us. But the example I give of that one is we had a woman in a program, she went into an HR job. And the person that she ended up working for said something that was really interesting to me. And HR is a specific example, because that's an industry or a function that moves pretty slowly. But her point was that the things she knew from her past HR career were the things that hadn't changed, right? Policy, law, things like that. What had changed was the software. There was a whole new suite of software that companies were using, success factors, workday, this, that, and the other thing. But the HR person's feeling was like, that's the easy part. I can teach anyone how to use our HRIS system. In fact, it's built for someone who might not be very technical savvy and might need some help with it. But what I can't teach someone new is why, why you need the manager to document this, that, and a third and how to do that that's not as readily just learned on the job or is, but takes more time and takes more of that professional experience and maturity to be good at. So I think we overestimate how quickly someone in a 16-week returnship can get acclimated to the things that we've all gotten pretty used to in the last couple of years. And I also think that, and I imagine this is part of the discussion with folks looking for returnships and returning to work, it's also how do you tap into what the new cultural norms are? What was okay to either say or for someone to say to you in the office six years ago even is not okay now. You know, I'm just now trying to get my staff who are very young to understand the importance of pronouns 
and identity. Yeah. And these folks are in their 20s and 30s. You would think that a guy who's 50 this year (laughs) shouldn't have to tell them that, right? Now, they're getting there, but even that younger cohort of Gen Z and millennials, the ones who are even in the workforce now still need to be brought along, right? So we all can kind of get brought along together, I imagine. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, what we sort of emphasize is when you look at someone who's returning to the workforce, they're people who are, are often learning machines, right? They First of all, you want to talk about the ultimate startup experience, have a baby, right? You go into the <laughs> hospital and you have this baby and then they hand it to you and they tell you to go home. <laughs> And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) And, you know, so the mom job, the parenting job, but the mom job is the ultimate learn on the job job. You have to just figure it out as you go. And as soon as you've figured out one stage, they go ahead and change on you. And by the way, stay-at-home moms are also the ultimate self-motivated, like they have been making their own time and organizing themselves Stay-at-home moms don't have a boss, well, they have a boss. The boss is a baby, which is crazy, right? But they don't have someone telling them, okay, now do this and now do that and go to this meeting and go to that meeting and here's your deliverable. They have to figure it out all on themselves. So I think we underestimate also the skills and experiences that people gain outside the workforce and how those are applicable within the workforce. Right, especially when it comes to common sense. When it comes to common sense, when it comes to, you know, one story I tell often, and I do this in my manager training too, right? So I'm a special needs mom. My son has a very severe speech impediment and we've had a lot of things with him and he's doing great, but, you know, special schools and different doctors and this, that, and a third. And what I tell people is when you think about a special needs mom, one of the things that they become by circumstance very good at is digesting large amounts of very complicated information that they have never encountered before in their life in which they are not expert. So encountering that information, digesting that information and making really tough, sometimes life altering decisions in the face of ambiguity, even with an expert across the desk saying, well, this might work. Well, maybe you should do it that way. Breaking through bureaucracy, figuring out deadlines, dealing with the DOE, dealing with this, that, and all these things, right? Who else, when you think about a job category, what's a job category in corporate America that digests complicated information that they've never seen before and makes important decisions in the face of ambiguity? Every executive. A CEO, right? (laughs) Right. And we specifically, we say that CEOs deserve these massive pay packages because they're able to do that. And that's so hard and it's so complicated and it requires such a high level of executive functioning, right? Special ed moms are doing this all day, every day. All day, every day. And I would add also analogous is that it can be very lonely. Very lonely. And you need to have an extraordinary amount of patience and not be quick react. You have to take a beat. Totally. Right. Right. And those are also very important skills. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an educational expert. I'm not a special ed expert. Right. And I have to figure out if this expert's telling me the right thing or that expert's telling me the right thing. So anyways, I think that's, I mean, look, America assigns value the way we assign value (laughs) to different categories. But when I tell that story to managers, what I'm trying to get them to see is how that can have value, right? Someone who's run a volunteer organization can get people to do work for free. That's way harder than getting people to do work for a paycheck and being able to influence people, not just having authority. 
in a matrix organization, which many companies now are, having someone who can influence, who can get things done through influence is very valuable. That's a very helpful skill. So just thinking differently and seeing the business value of those experiences. I don't want managers to think like, oh, good for you, special need mom. What a good thing you did for your kid. Yeah, of course I did. I want you to see that that has value for you as a manager, that my ability to do those things will redound to your business in a very important and helpful way. And that has value. Yeah, those skills are to say they're transferable is probably an understatement. I totally get that. We're going to pause here for just a very quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Now, we talk about the transfer of skills and we're in this environment right now where you have, you probably know better than I do, like 30 million people in the US out of work. Yeah. How are you navigating return chips and how has that impacted you know, your organization amidst this pandemic. And the other thing I'll add, because I know there's a bunch of questions in there, we talk a lot about people who are actually relearning how to do their job right now. So these are people who aren't returning to work because they've been out of the workforce for six plus years. It's, we had been working and now we're working differently. And I heard some people say they even have imposter syndrome now because they're not even sure how they're able to provide the same level of service or work the same way but in a different modality with such great uncertainty ahead, right? Yeah. So look, it's definitely impacting us as an organization. And one of the things we're focused on right now is actually thinking more about those philanthropic donations. And, you know, can we get some of our supporters to provide more support than they maybe have in the past in order to augment? We believe our partner income will be down this year. It's hard to imagine that it wouldn't be. That said, there are still companies, even in this environment, that are hiring and will be hiring. We've actually worked with about 70 companies at this point. It's been a few more since the last time we updated our website, which I'll go do after this. So, you know, we think of the companies we've worked for, we think we can get, there will be companies that will want to do this program in the fall. And there are definitely people looking for opportunities to return to the workforce. There's no question about that. And there will be more, right? What we're kind of thinking about now as an organization, clearly getting through 2020, as everyone is thinking about how to, what do we do to get through 2020? But as I think forward into 21 and 22, some of it's going to depend on where the job losses are coming from now and how permanent some of them are. And that's, I think, very uncertain at this moment. A lot of the job losses right now are not coming from the types of jobs we typically have worked with companies on, right? Those more professional college educated jobs. Clearly, some of those people are losing jobs. Those are the ones that are likely to come back relatively quickly. Again, it just depends on what the overall shape of the economic downturn ends up looking like. But one way or another, it will come back. And what I think is going to be important, in fact, McKinsey just came out with a report about, don't forget, I think it's going to be an opportunity for us to see which companies were serious about diversity initiatives and which ones were just kind of full of it because they were looking for talent and were willing to seek it anywhere, right? Like in an economy with three and a half percent unemployment, sure, sure, I'll hire the returning mom. Sure, I'll hire the former incarcerated. Sure, 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 sure. Mm -hmm. In a world where that's not the case, technology, for example, still does not have as many women as men, right? It's still an 80-20 game in most technology companies, right? Are they still committed to trying to bring more women into their workforce? in order to gain that diversity of thought, gain those different perspectives, and we'll see. 
but that need is still going to be there. So under the headline of silver linings, and I'm trying not to be indelicate to the situation we're in, but I've been thinking, well, you're right. For a company that really is committed to diversity and inclusion, broadly speaking, right? Here's an opportunity to rebuild. It's forced, but you can rebuild based on three very important universal modern truths for any business, right? One, you need to be purpose-driven. Two, diversity and inclusion. And three, digital transformation. Not in any order per se, but it is kind of potentially an opportunity to drive more DNI, like you said, in the corporate world. Eventually, it will come back. I mean, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I'm hopeful. Things will eventually, it might take a year, two years, five years, 10 years, who knows, but we'll eventually get back to some sort of level of 3% unemployment versus 20% unemployment. Yeah, and diversity is a big topic and there's lots of things for companies to think about. I obviously come at it from a gender perspective. So we're really focused on caregiving, right? Our program is open to men. There just aren't as many of them because there aren't as many who've been out of the workforce for caregiving. Women are 12 times more likely than men to leave the workforce for caregiving. It is the reason why women's workforce participation rates are lower than men's, particularly when you think about prime earning years between like, call it 25 and 50. And from the corporate perspective, what that means is if you believe that your company would be stronger and better if you could get closer to gender parity or gender balance, if you believe that a stronger workforce would would draw from the most talented people and talent being evenly distributed, (laughs) that your workforce would look a little more even, then you cannot get there without having some way to bring women back into the workforce. You won't get there. Of course. You won't get there. Mathematically impossible. Mathematically impossible. And when we think about technology jobs, one of the great stats that Melinda Gates had in her book from last year was that women in computer science has actually been dropping off in the last 30 years. So there was a much larger percentage of women coming out of computer science programs in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, than there were in the last couple of years. Now, there's a lot of people working to bring that number back up, right? We need to get more young women into computer science and gain parity in computer science programs. But if you are hiring engineers right this minute (laughs) and you want more women engineers, they probably graduated from college in 1985. And so there's a bigger Gen X, there's a bigger pool of Gen X comp sci majors than there are, you know, millennials and younger women. It's so interesting to hear you say that because there's a disconnect there because I remember not only going on college tours with my oldest but most recently, the university he's currently enrolled in, they're touting how they have these very, very high enrollment rates in their STEM programs of women. Yeah. So I'm not saying they're lying. No, 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 they're not lying. So that that's a reflection of work that's been done in the last couple of years as these colleges and universities are trying to gain more women, right? But like, if you think about the last 30 years, right, who's in the workforce now or potential to be in the workforce now? There's a much higher percentage of women with computer science degrees from the late 80s and the early part of the 90s than there are from the later 90s and the early 2000s, right? There was a very big drop-off that NCWIT documented. Now, they're trying to get that back up, and you've seen work in the last couple of years as there have been all these girls who code and 
those are only programs that have existed for the last five or so years. So those still have a ways to go. So again, I just think about when I tell the stories about like the experience of the people in our talent pool and the, you know, the number of them that have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, part of what I'm trying to get people's brains around is there are parts of our workforce. Look, I think there are plenty of people to do all the jobs that businesses need done, but there are parts of our talent pool that are constrained, right? There are only so many people who get a bachelor's degree every year. There are only so many people who get master's degrees. There are only so many who get degrees in certain disciplines. So if you are, as a company, not being aggressive and thinking about how you can capture as many of them as possible when they fall into those categories, you're constraining your available talent pool and probably actually increasing your labor costs in a weird way, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, you, like me, are also a Forbes contributor, right? And unlike me, you're probably a much better writer and you typically write about gender equality and career advice, which makes a lot of sense. And- I'll understand if you hesitate in answering this, but which companies do you think are getting it right currently? Which ones are you admiring? Which ones? And I know that there's no such thing as 100% perfect. We know that. We're humans. But at least by way of intent or making an effort. Yeah, I would say, and you know, they were one of our earliest partners. I was always very admiring of PayPal. I felt like they truly walked the walk when it came to work-life balance. Like it wasn't just BS when you when you talk to the actual people working there they really meant it they really meant that they were family friendly they really meant that you didn't get that same sense of like you know work hard play hard you know or, 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 they just didn't have that same vibe that i think is immediately you know i i'm always a little skeptical when i walk into a company i just wrote a forbes column about this right they show me the game room and they show me the you know, and the craft beers on tap and they debate which craft beer to have on tap because when they're interviewing new engineers, they ask. And, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, do you have on-site childcare? You know, and they look at you like you have three heads. How could we possibly afford something like that? Why would we do that? Or even just asking them about basic flexibility policies sometimes. And it's like, oh, well, you know, and I'm like, okay, so you know, the guy who grabs a beer and plays ping pong at lunchtime, cool, dude, come on in. That's great. But if mom's running out at 530 so she can get there for daycare pickup, well, is she really committed? And so how we think about what counts as commitment and what, you know, oh, they, you know, they need to blow off steam. So we put in a game room so they can play at lunch. Great. I have no problem with that, by the way. That's all awesome. great. Hooray. But I blow off my steam by leaving my office and hanging out with my kids. That's my stress relief. And I don't think I should get penalized because I work through lunch so that I could leave and go home, hang out with my kids instead of hanging out in the game room with you guys. So I look for those kinds of things. Like, do they offer flexibility? Do they think about people contributing in different ways? It's not weird for a startup to have a lot of early employees that look like each other because they're all friends. And that's how they met and they came together and they formed a company and okay. But if you get to 75, 100 employees and it's still predominantly young white guys, you've made a conscious choice to continue hiring people who look like everybody else and to not try to find a different way to do that. So PayPal's a good example. I've been impressed with Walmart. 
And in both cases, actually, those CEOs are very front and center, very accessible, very transparent, and very active with their staff. Both are very social mission impact oriented, especially PayPal, especially for a fintech company. It's amazing. But we do some work with PayPal credit. And I've gotten to kind of take a look on the inside. And it's you're right. It's very real. It's very genuine. It's not BS. They definitely walk the talk. Yeah. So there's definitely companies out there. Look, I think we'll see what the hiring landscape looks like for the next, call it 12 to 18 months. But I continue to believe being a good employer is going to be a competitive advantage for companies. So last question. I mean, I think we could talk forever. This is so interesting. Yeah. Do you think in a weird but very positive way, when things kind of get back online again and whatever that new normal is, I actually think people who have are used to working at home, even as caregivers, probably are better adept at working at home than people who have not been working at home, who are struggling. <laughs> this is kind of a weird thing, right? Well, look, like I said, I do think stay-at-home moms particularly, probably any caregiver, but stay-at-home moms particularly spend that time figuring out how to manage their own workflows and their own schedules. So, you know, if we are looking for a workforce that is able to self-manage, literally self-manage, I think that's true. I have my very optimistic days and my very pessimistic days about what this crisis is going to mean, not just from a hiring perspective, because I actually think one way or another, that which comes down also does go back up. I worry about gender equality and what this is going to do. I think there's There's some evidence that now that men are home all day and seeing what it takes to run a house and some of the traditional, particularly middle class and upper middle class supports falling away for some families needing to pitch in. But I think there's also some evidence that a lot of those extra burdens are falling more heavily on women. And I wrote a column about on Forbes. There was a story in the Lily about academic journals were seeing a plummet in the number of submissions from women academics. So the number of paper submissions from female academics had fallen because of the increased home burden around homeschool and all these things. And the kind of gut punch of it was not just that women's contributions had fallen, but men's had gone up by 50%. So I worry about that. Like I worry that that burden will continue to fall disproportionately. But then the optimism comes partly in the form of, I think, some men suddenly realizing, oh, I probably should be doing more. And also women realizing, like, wait a minute, your job is and could be a lot more flexible than you've led me to believe, (laughs) right? The idea that you can't work from home or that you couldn't do more stuff is probably. But on the flip side, on the corporate side, there have been a lot of companies that have been very reluctant to allow remote work, work from home even partially. And I think that's going to be a harder policy. It's going to be harder for a company to say, oh, no, 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 you can't work from home anymore. I mean, what we're seeing, of course, in tech is companies saying, oh, yeah, work from home through you know, the end of the year into next year. I think for a lot of people, they will want to be in the office sometime. I would like to go back to the office. <laughs> a lot of people would like to go back to the office. But I think it's going to be a lot easier for a mom in Silicon Valley, by the way, where the commutes can be ridiculous and you know, two hours each way for mom to say, you know what, I'm gonna come in the office two days a week and I'll get my interaction and I'll be able to do that and I'm gonna do my focused work from home two or three days a week. 
And I think it's going to be a lot easier to negotiate those kinds of schedules in a world where we just all worked from home for God knows how long. So I have optimism that there'll be some things that are going to change for the better. Yeah. No, I like that example. Again, I, I try to focus on the positive, even though I'm very cognizant of the negative. And I'm also starting to see, even in my own staff, though, people are starting to fray a little bit, regardless of kind of what their role is at home. And you just said it, and I feel the same way. They don't want to be home anymore. And they want to get back to some sort of level of normalcy. And I, I feel it. You know, I'm there. I'm totally there. So, Tammy, remind everyone, is it pathforward.org? It is. That's the website? Yeah, pathforward.org. And there's a ton of resources you guys are doing Ask Me Anything. You're doing webinars for both men and women who are looking to return to work. And I appreciate you and I appreciate everything you're doing. And I love your story. I love the whole career arc. And you're living my future best life because I've long said one day I would like to be able to run a nonprofit, which is kind of like saying one day I'd like to have every tooth pulled, right? Because I'm very involved a lot in nonprofits and it is so hard, but it's also so important because without organizations like yours, we wouldn't be able to provide all sorts of different opportunities and services and give back the way that you have. So I appreciate that. And thank you again for coming on. 10 years from now, we're going to do this again. Okay, perfect. It might be called something different. That's and okay. we're going to talk about the amazing surge in women who have computer science degrees, right? And focused on STEM and now are in the workforce and they're leading companies. And Path Forward will be having 50% of every class will be men because fathers will have taken a break from their careers and we will be serving men and women equally. How about that? (laughs) I'm with it. I'm with you there. That's great. Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much. This was super fun. I really loved it. Thank you. All right. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always-on-point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at thebopodcast, and learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Thank you.